0: Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm speaking with Gala Nerezo. Gala is a mother, artist, educator, and consultant whose work focuses on weaving awareness and reflection into all aspects of life. As a meditator for over 20 years, she believes that time spent reflecting on and integrating our experience helps us understand our context, know who we are, and manifest our purpose. Her work celebrates mindful changemaking through the arts and is focused on youth advocacy, plastic bag legislation, immigration, and women's rights. She has taught students of all ages in an array of venues, including the Arts Center College of Design, Pratt Institute, the Hotchkiss School, the Shambhala Center, mindful, that's mindful without any vowels, and many more. Welcome to the podcast, Gala.
1: Thank you, Sharon. Nice to be with you here.
0: It's very nice to be with you. And for the past few months, I've been doing a series here on the podcast about mental health as we're all navigating this complicated time with COVID and all that it has revealed in the world. And I've been talking to a variety of teachers, therapists, and artists about their perspectives. And I so much wanted to include your voice in that conversation. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Perhaps we can start with some context for how you came to the path of meditation, which clearly seems to be quite interwoven with your creative life. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank you for for that question. Um, Yeah, uh, mental health is definitely uh, the thread that brought me to meditation. And my first memory is, um, having what I used to call hormonal imbalance when I was uh, about 12 or 13, I used to have dizzy spells and I would feel a little bit lost and groundless. And this happened for years and I just didn't know why, what was wrong with me, what was going on. Um, it was like a mystery and I was always trying to solve, solve the mystery, um, and it wasn't until in my early 20s, actually after college, that I met a uh, Sifu Kenny Gong in Chinatown in New York City. And I started to do Chinese internal martial arts, which it turns out involves so much breath work. You breathe standing up, you breathe sitting down, you learn Qigong. And uh, one of the big important parts of of studying with with Kenny Gong was that we had to sit down in a corner and count our breath to a hundred each day, and every time we lost the thread, we had to start back at one. Oh. And so that was the my introduction to
0: meditation. Um, and uh, Gosh, in Burma, they have a yeah. there's a particular technique where. You count up to ten, and with your breath—the in breath or the out breath—and and if you lose it, you have to start again at one. I didn't realize that you could go up to a hundred. Well, I
1: don't think I ever got to ten, Sharon. I think that's—I think it's a very um, humorous practice, and uh, you're lucky if you can get to three, really. But um, I did that for some for a long time, and I did it every day. Uh, I went to his studio. Uh, most weekdays. And, um, yeah, I can say that after a year of doing martial arts and, and, um, and actually taking Chinese herbs and finding this new community that I did find a sense of control over this, these feelings that were really very, very difficult for so long.
0: And how old do you think you were around then when you you began all this?
1: Well, um, I know I was about 22, Mm -hmm. and um, that was when I started meditating. And one of the reasons I teach seventh graders, I've been teaching a class of seventh graders during the pandemic, and and I keep telling them um, the reason I'm here is because I really wish that I had had this sooner even though I was young I was 22 it would have been so important and useful for me if Mm -hmm. I had had it Mm -hmm. at an earlier age because I was really going through uh, a super hard time and um, later I think I renamed hormonal imbalance possibly depression Mm -hmm. um you know I didn't know what it was and and later than that and even uh more recently, I, I kind of have tracked it back to some real chaotic times in my family, in the home, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so when I talk to kids, I just say, you know, you may not know why you need this now and it might be a little boring, but just give it a shot <laughs> because <laughs> it will be, it'll be something you'll have in your back pocket. And one day, if any of this resonates for you, you might, you know, there might be something you can do that will be helpful. Yeah.
0: Wow so um uh before we go on to some of the other <laughs> questions, tell me more about the seventh graders.
1: It is such a trip <laughs> it real so i've uh, I've been doing a lot of zoom teaching during this time and um I actually, so I've been teaching at different schools, but this happens to be at my daughter's school, not her grade. And Mm -hmm. I've been offering meditation to the parents, to the teachers, to the administration (laughs) and to the (coughs) students. And, um, this class, uh, happened because the teacher really wanted meditation so badly and she had no time. And, um, I know you asked about the kids, but what I think is so important in schools right now is that everybody in education is needing this. Mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. can 't just you know try to you know help the kids or help the parents like everyone is is suffering equally, <laughs> and yeah. so um, the teacher gets a little bit of practice every week because I see the kids, and we have a few kids who are amazing and turn their camera on and have so many questions and tell me how, how they use it and all their insights. And then I have a lot of black boxes, you know, kids who I just don't know if they're doing Mm -hmm. it or not. Um, but then I get a bunch of little chat messages on the side and it's been, I have to say of 30 kids each week, there's enough feedback for me to know. I just know that it's making a difference. And each week a new kid might turn their camera on or make a comment. Um, and so, I really do feel, I feel good about it. Even if I, I don't really know what's happening, maybe some seeds are being planted.
0: Well, that's great. And, and I agree totally about the teachers because uh, I teach on Zoom all the time and I'm a, a great chat reader, you know? Yeah. I can multitask, I guess, or else <laughs> I'm just distracted enough so that I'm often reading the chat. And uh, I see those comments from teachers, you know, like, my kids are not able to learn remotely. They're so depressed. I am so depressed. Um, not everybody, of course, is saying that, no. but they're enough so that I realize yeah. how, how very hard it's been and frustrating for a number of teachers.
1: Yeah. And there's some kids who are real. I mean, I, I've been shocked to hear the extent of depression and dissociation mm-hmm. from of some children, um, you know, in an area that I'm not equipped to even help, you know, really serious. And it just makes me uh, really want to reach all the children and sometimes let them know that it's okay to stop worrying about work, Mm -hmm. about school, about pressure, and just, you know, settle down into (laughs) some small experience that might feel good in that moment. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you teach both art and mindfulness, I know that, and mm-hmm. you do a lot of work supporting others to find their creative expression, especially in younger populations, which sounds like so much fun. Mm-hmm. And in this time of COVID, I'm curious what role you feel art can play in our wellness and mental health.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for that question. Yeah, i I realized after... Many years of of working in the arts and many years of meditating that there was no way that they could stay separate, so they kind of wove together, and and then so did my interest in social social work. So I'll talk more, I'm sure later about how that those kind of create a triangle for me. Um, but so what I'm going to say is to. St- that art for me has become really more a process. And I like to think of creativity more than art because people think of art with a capital A and they think about objects and paintings and museums. And I've really moved away from that, um, kind of understanding or definition personally for of art. And so creativity, uh, I think of as more of a process and a way of being in the world, a way of being open and attentive to possibility that's right in front of you, and um, using our imagination. So first without sounding like a broken record, I do think that this time to just settle, whether it's meditation or quiet, um, that we need to have a little bit of space in us first to be able to find creativity. Um, When you're all nervous and filled with worries about homework and things, it's (laughs) going to be hard to find that. So... I have this idea that we first need to just do a little bit of settling somehow, but that could even just be a walk. You know, we could take a walk or we could have a nice meal, take a nap. Um, and I guess I just want to reiterate that this kind of the centering that that, that the nervous system feel tended to in some way is important first, um, And once we feel that way, or while we're feeling that way, we can open ourselves up and be curious and explore. So being creative could be you know, walking down the street in a new way, (laughs) you could walk, take a walk every day. That's the same old walk. You walk with your dog, it's becoming boring, but today you're going to decide to skip and Mm -hmm. you're going to, you know, you're just, you're going to do it differently. You're going to skip. And maybe then at the end of the road, you're going to sit down on the ground and look at, uh, you know, the worms that are crossing the street. Um, so I do think, Things are really rough right now for a lot of people, uh, for so many reasons, the pandemic has just brought up so many extra reasons for us to feel blocked or sad or, um, stagnant. And so bringing a little bit of imagination and possibility into daily life and mixing things up, um, I think can be a very helpful way to, to connect with, um, some more joy in daily
0: life yeah you know i was teaching the other day and um the topic i was i was addressing was kind of the stories others tell about us Hmm. that we tend to absorb and and believe and it guides our actions and our choices at least to some extent into the future and what just popped into my mind was this example I said, like my friend Joseph Goldstein, who in, uh, it was either kindergarten or in first grade, he failed cutting and pasting <laughs> because he made a mess. And he talks about kind of the shame of having to yeah. bring home this report card with a big red F on it. And later, as he got older, he loved to sing. And by conventional standards, maybe he doesn't have that greater voice and some choir teacher or somebody like that said to him uh you should just mouth the words don't sing Mm. don't sing out loud your voice is just really bad so he was like so inhibited you know Mm -hmm. about making a mess or about and certainly about singing and he loved to sing and this became kind of a theme as he as he got older and uh, at some point he was telling a story about um, working with a Zen teacher where uh, there, there are koans in that particular system and you're given a koan and you have to sort of be with it and, you know, inhabit it. And then you see the teacher like some unbelievable number of times a day, you know, like four times a day, which is supposed to present your answer. And Usually they say, you know, forget it, try again. But um, the koan he got from this teacher was something like, how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? Which mm-hmm. implies chant the sutra, that's living it, you know? And, yeah. and it was so hard for him to basically mm-hmm. sing out loud and so important. And tell, hearing this story, somebody actually gave him the gift of singing lessons, which weren't for the sake of improving his voice. It was just that fun. Right. You know, and yeah. he said this whole group of people that just had a really fun time. Like nobody had a, you know, trained voice or uh, an elegant presentation, but they would just belt it out. And it was like really great. And so I, I just think about that a lot, how inhibited so many of us are. Yeah about accessing the world of creativity, whether it's writing or music or dance or visual arts. And it's almost like an idea you've either got talent or you've got creativity when you're born or you don't. And um, what do you say to people who've either heard it from someone else or or somehow have that conviction themselves that they just can't do it?
1: Yeah. Wow. Poor joseph that's yeah, really no. right
0: <laughs> he sings all the time he 's very happy about it you know he broke through yeah,
1: you know, well, yeah that's a lot um, yeah it is it's such a good question um I mean i so yeah, back to this idea of how objectified everything is in our world and in our culture, we objectify. You know, these works of art and we want to put value on them and we objectify people for how they look and how they show up and how they present things. Um, So one just a story to, to add to your story, Sharon. I'm in a group. I'm actually learning about Mexican indigenous healing practices. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was Mexican and so is my husband and a lot of my family is in Mexico and uh, I'm just very drawn to these traditions and they have this tradition of sweat lodges uh, called temazcal and mm-hmm. you go you go inside this sweat lodge that is very much meant to simulate the womb. So it's dark and hot. Thank you. And you sing really loud with all these oh. people. And it's one of the most beautiful experiences. And I don't have a great voice. And my, one of my dreams is to be reborn as Celia Cruz, who's, you know, I, an amazing Cuban singer who mm-hmm. I, I just think she's fabulous and, or was. And, um, so there's a lot of freedom in this space to kind of just be and sing. And, and so I was in this, group class on zoom just the other day. And I said, you know, I'm a little nervous because I had to lead the singing this day. And, um, and they said to me, this is an offering. This is not an object and we're not listening to you as a performance. You're, Uh you're giving an offering and, um, and, and you just, you know, you take it from that place. And um, and it made me remember, I love how it feels when I sing. Mm-hmm. And if I can just breathe, like, you know, this way that many of us in the mindfulness world, <laughs> you yeah. know, like before we do something, we sit down and we take a breath and other people might be like, what are they doing? <laughs> Why are they mm-hmm. doing that weird silence? But during that moment of silence, i'm connecting to something in me that is not that inhibited self it's Mm -hmm. the me it's the me that wants to sing right and so then i can sing as an offering and um so i i would say to that person who says they're a non-creative that we don't have to think about these words um the way they're defined for an art gallery or a creative in an ad agency, we, as soon as we bring two um, new ideas together in our mind, we can create a new idea and a new possibility and and have fun. It could just be like, putting oranges in your tomato sauce one night, which actually is really good. But, you know, oh, that's that, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like doing something that you wouldn't think of doing and that that act of being like open to something that you don't know mm-hmm. is real. It's creative and it's freeing. And I think I think trust also, um, you know, my story of origin is a little bit that it's a lot that i i was so inhibited by the the chaos and the screaming in my home that a part of me was really like shoved down and when i began to connect more to who i was and trust more that that i could access myself it was easier it's becoming easier to sing or to feel that i can generate something um And I've been working, trying to make art my whole life. So to someone who hasn't, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, take a few breaths, go watch a spider, make a spider web for a little while. Um, Think about something that you do the same all the time, and then see if you can add in something different and be curious and interested in how you might change change it up and allow a little freedom and spaciousness in to your experience.
0: Wow. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It also reminds me of my own experience and, and maybe it kind of implies that everything is an act of creativity or offering. Um, it reminds me a lot of my own experience as a, a young teacher and being absolutely petrified of giving talks, which I was mm-hmm. just incapable of. And, mm-hmm. I was just too scared. And, uh, the first retreat, Joseph and I were invited to teach in this country was a month long retreat. So, and the format of our, our intensive retreats is people practice all day or there's Q and A sessions or you're meeting privately with a teacher. And then at night there's one formal discourse. That's like the big event of the day. And so a 30 day retreat meant 30 discourses. And I could Mm -hmm. not do one. I was just absolutely terrified. And And Joseph uh, was accosted by many people who'd go up to him and say, why won't you let her have a voice? Why won't you let her say anything? (laughs) And and he'd say, I'd love it. Just tell her, you know, don't tell me, you know, And could not do it. And um, what I was really afraid of was that my mind, I would be talking and my mind would just go blank and I'd be sitting there looking like a total fool and I, I couldn't do it. And it was a whole process of, uh, you know, to quote you, kind of seeing it not as a p- polished presentation uh, of perfection, but really an offering. And I realized through a variety of means, including a lot of loving kindness practice, that people were not there seeking my expertise. They just wanted a connection. They wanted a sense of yeah. connection. They wanted a sense that we were there together. and um and part of what helped me in that, oddly enough, was um, having a, a further sequence of Asian meditation teachers, mm-hmm. because uh, they don't have a sense of needing to entertain people. Mm-hmm. You know, their offering is is a body of knowledge, and and often those talks were like gruellingly repetitive, and uh, and in fact repetition compared to novelty, which is something we're into, uh, in the West repetition yeah. is almost the hallmark of education there. You know, you hear the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again. And, and I think that's fine. So then I thought, okay, if he can be that boring, I can be boring too, you know, <laughs> like, that's all right. You know, yeah. we're here for a purpose and we're here together. And, and, uh, yeah, they need to know they're cared for, and and that I do care about them, and and that's it. And then it was like a whole other kind of breakthrough feeling. Yeah,
1: um, I love that. Can I say something that may be a little yeah. off? But it sounds—I mean—that's so inspiring to me because. I mean, I think repetition is how we learn. And like I practice every day, maybe several times a day, because I have to remember and I need to be reminded over and over again. Mm-hmm. And um, it just makes me think about economics and the growth model and mm-hmm. the fact that we live in a country and in a culture where if it's not new and different, it doesn't grow and it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. make more money. And and um, that's... That's um not better in my book, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, but that's maybe what what has to happen in certain systems, and so um even trusting that that repetitive or what seems like boring might be exactly what's needed mm-hmm. um and that we don't have to follow this this kind of trail of always making something shiny and new it's. You know, it's like a false a false path, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah.
0: No, that's great. And actually yeah. I'm gonna um tell you a story that's also a little uh uh different from what I thought we would be talking about <laughs> at this point. But that's all right. Um, uh which was actually in my last book, Real Change, where um I was sitting in uh the audience listening to a panel at emory university one year and the panel was sponsored by the art department and so uh there were a lot of questions about that and the panelists were the dalai lama and the writer alice walker and the actor mm-hmm. richard gear and um the first question was something that i had been asked some variety of you know a thousand times which was Basically, does great art need to come from torment? Basically, mm. does it need to come from chaos and mm-hmm. um, disruption in your life, and you know, pain and, and emotional torment? And, um, and I have heard some version of that many, many times, and it is a very Western notion. And mm. so Alice Walker spoke first, and she said, "Well, my early mentors in poetry actually did believe that, and." They taught that. But what I've seen is that I've gotten older and happier and I think my poetry's gotten better. And and Richard Gere talked about being like an angry young man as a uh, beginning actor and kind of getting through that and and the Dalai Lama um, just looked confused. <laughs> and you know, it was just like what? <laughs> what? Right. And uh he was so cute. He said something like, you know, people are always dragging me places, basically. Yeah. I said it better than this. People are always dragging me places to look at something. Like, isn't that an amazing piece of architecture, that building? And isn't that painting extraordinary? And, and he said, in Tibet, we have a belief that the worth of a piece of art, its beauty, its, its value, depends on the transformation of the artist in creating it. Wow. So if the artist becomes kinder, they become wiser, they become more connected, they become more loving. That is a beautiful piece of art. And I was sitting there thinking that's a very different standard. Right.
1: Yeah. That's amazing because I'm listening to you and hearing this trope that we've heard our whole lives, right, about like the tormented artist. Mm -hmm. And simply, all of a sudden, I thought, well, where are we placing our value? Mm -hmm. If if we're saying that art is the good art or whatever, quote unquote, great art is, um, has to come from torment, how how much are we really valuing well being and mm-hmm. health, mm-hmm. and and I think that's a very I mean right now I'm hearing this a little differently in that it really reflects the values and and priorities of our society,
0: mm-hmm.
1: wh- which clearly well being is not at the top, um, and yeah, and 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 I'll ju- I mean I will just say that as as somebody who has. I thought of myself as an artist for many years and now I don't even call myself anything really but yeah. <laughs> um that idea of producing a thing that would have a value was so problematic for me as somebody who really had all sorts of identity issues around my upbringing and Mm -hmm. you know that that the value of me or what I was making like I just shifted away from that altogether and I really do think of life as an experience that Mm -hmm. we're living it it's momentary every time I see my daughter I just feel so lucky to have that moment with her you know it's not morbid but we just you know we're here and then we're gone Mm -hmm. and um that's what, you know, if you want to call it art or creativity or simply mm-hmm. just being alive and being present in the moment feels a lot better than all those conversations <laughs> about tortured artists. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting yeah. what you say about the value yeah. or lack of value placed on well-being because then it's mm-hmm. sort of like, what do we think it produces? Like complacency and like mediocrity and... You know, it doesn't sound that attractive, you know, to be healed in some way. And yet uh, it doesn't have to be seen that way at all, neither interpersonally nor in terms of kind of classic sense of, of creativity. And another thing I wanted to ask you about was um clearly something that many people have experienced mm-hmm. in this last period of time has been loneliness and even before mm-hmm. then. There was this tremendous epidemic of loneliness, apparently, and uh, so many heartbreaking stories. Not everyone has been isolated by any means. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there has obviously been constraint in our normal kind of activities, whoever we are, maybe even if you worked all day and 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 so on. You know, th- there's been a lot of letting go. And there's something about the... Creation of art, depending on what kind, like if you 're in theater it 's a collaboration um, it 's been fascinating to watch Zoom arrive as a yeah means that people can write together and things like that but there 's often a kind of loneliness in in the creative process or at least a solitariness and i 'm mm-hmm. just wondering if there was something that you wanted to say about that
1: um, yeah, I think it 's super rich. Um, I mean, I don't mind solitude. So, you know, I'll just put that out there. And when you have a child and a husband and you do a lot of things, a little time alone for me um, has been, you know, just for myself, I've, I've appreciated time alone. Um, But I have actually probably never been as social as I have been during the pandemic, but social in a funny, different kind of way. Uh, The minute the pandemic started, I started gathering, um, zoom groups of people to meditate together and just share their, um, kind of status, how they were feeling that day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it just felt very, um, poignant and generative and so I kept doing it and then I started doing morning groups and I would have mother's groups and then I had a global group with people from different time zones and um, a lot of these people I was just meeting because people came you know from other people and and we'd Mm -hmm. all just meet on zoom and we create We created a form. So the form is that it would always start with a little bit of practice. And so whether you knew how to meditate or not, we would sit in silence for about 15 minutes. And then there was a little bit of reading, a poem or some dharma, something to reflect on. And then there would be writing time and there'd be five or eight minutes just to do some free writing on the topic or whatever you wanted to write about. And then finally, we would just have space in in the form of circles, you know, the way that uh, there's council practice, circle practice, Mm -hmm. where people had an opportunity to share what was on their mind and be heard but there was not a conversation and there was no answering or fixing each other. There was simply a time to share. Mm -hmm. And so we developed this form and, and I'm talking a lot about the form because it actually was what enabled so many people to show up and actually get out of their shell and talk a little bit or uh, share what was hard for them during this time. Um, So, I I did sense a lot of loneliness and people who came were lonely, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they it was only usually 45 minutes to an hour that we were together each day. Um, but there was a really um clear sense of being seen and heard. And it made me think a lot about the idea of Sangha as path. Mm-hmm. And uh, I returned to a lot of Titnat Han's writings on that. Topic, and uh, it really made me think how a lot a lot of loneliness can be remedied when we're in a community, a respectful community, and we feel that we're seen and heard. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Uh, so you have a daughter at home, and many people are with their their families, their children. Not everybody, of course, but. Uh, many and um, you also do a lot of family-centered teaching, so I'm, I'm very curious about that and how you navigate mindfulness as as a mother.
1: Yeah. Um, thanks. Yeah, that is a bit. It's an important part of of life and practice. Um, I think that the. It begins with my own practice and staying sane and centered myself. Uh, So that's where the mindfulness practice begins. Um, I have been taking my daughter to... A summer Buddhist camp for mm-hmm. over, I think we're going on eight years now. And I know it doesn't sound like a very usual thing, but it's really just a beautiful place. A lot of land where kids get to play and be together and do archery and um, enjoy each other's company. But the parents are there and the parents are doing some meditation and practice in the mornings and so I mentioned this, too, because the kids are watching us do this practice. And I think that a lot of mindful parenting is about modeling behavior that's healthy. Not the behavior that you think is like, this is the right way to be or the right thing to do. But like if I'm spinning out or I'm not feeling grounded, that my kid can see that I have a way uh, to find my center again, and that that models um, that that kind of skill set that I was talking about with the seventh graders, mm-hmm. and um, and this is going to sound really radical, but I think as a parent you have to work on liking yourself, mm-hmm. um, and taking time for yourself, um, letting go of always being right <laughs> or mm-hmm. think thinking that you that you might actually always be right which is not true at all <laughs> there's so much we learn from our kids so um i think to show up responsibly to model well for them to be spontaneous and to leave the script behind and to to learn to have fun with them no mm.
0: yeah. And so when people gather um, with you uh, through Zoom or whatever, um, do a lot of questions come up about family life? Is it sort of uh, dedicated to, to that process as well?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it, it Like I have a morning group. We meet every morning and different people come and go. So that, you know, that will appear if there's mm-hmm. a par- if a parent is sharing and, and for the most part, any parent who is reflecting is bringing in, you know, the, the difficulties and challenges of, of parenting yeah. now. Um, but I also, I have a mother's group and we started gathering I think about eight years ago and that's in, in Greenwich village in New York. And we just all came together through being in the same neighborhood. Um, and that group also, back to the idea of form, it's been a very useful space because people are able to show up with the things that are, you know, weighing on them mm-hmm, and share. And um, and there, there is some, you know, at the end, there will be some reflective and thoughtful suggestions or someone will say, you know, I can take your kid next week if you need it. You know, a, an hour by yourself, or you know, when my father was sick, this is what we did, and so it's it's beautiful because I think it's like creating the village again, having mm-hmm. a you know communities of of mothers or of parents or even just of suffering humans <laughs> coming yeah. together to share their their experience. Yeah.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your work as an activist. You've done a lot of work around immigration, plastic bag legislation, youth advocacy, and women's rights, to name just a few. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. this past year, certainly we have seen such an incredible arising of movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. And I know that there are many people looking for ways to become more engaged in their communities and can you share a little bit about your experience as an activist and why do you tell people in terms of that kind of yearning to be more involved? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, thank you. So um, this is a such a good question. Um, so I was teaching at Pratt Institute. I was teaching graduate students a class called um, Design Advocacy and so the idea is using art and design to find a way to address some issue and I was really curious when several students said you know I really am so interested in making a difference in the world but I I just don't know what I should do and uh and I said well what do you care about right what what's important to you and um and what was clear is that they just weren't, didn't know exactly. This came up enough that um, that I used to do a, a lot of reflective and free writing work in class, and just ask them to think about you know, what matters to them. And we would tease that out. So, you you know, it's hard to sit down and say, what do I care about, right? You might write down, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you care a lot about animals or maybe you care about reproductive rights and it's a little easier, but sometimes you really have to um, kind of look into your own experience to figure out what is the thing that you feel passionately about because you're most probably going to bring... um no, your real commitment and energy to something that has meaning. So I start there just asking people to think about what matters. And then, you know, if, if it's animals, um, to start figuring out like, how do I want to make this difference? Right. Can I read a book about something? Can I listen to a talk about something? Um, and there's so many organizations doing so many things. So a little bit of research works, but, um, with what's been going on this year, which is um, heartbreaking and almost inconceivable, just all the lights that are being shined on all the mm-hmm. different varieties of racism and hatred. Uh, it can be a little scary, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just going and working at a dog shelter, although that might be exactly the right way to start. You know, it might mm-hmm. be... That starting in an area where you feel drawn and that feels good to you and volunteering your time, that's helpful because it's going to be healthy for you and it's going to be helpful, right, to the shelter. Um, But in terms of some of these bigger issues that are really complex, I think that we have to educate ourselves and be responsible and do a little, you know, reading and research and listening, my daughter and I, we were talking about what's happening in Israel right now, in mm-hmm. Palestine. And, and she was listening to a boy who she knows who was, had a very strong view about Israel. And I said, um, can you try to uh, understand maybe a little bit where he's coming from, you know, where his life and his story and his experience might lead him to feel a certain way? Um And she's just 14 and she, you know, she had some big ideas about things. But I think that if anything right now, um, we need to find our similarities more than our differences and not think that we understand everything. Mm. So, I mean, it might be a funny way to answer this question. I could go on and on. I mean, I have so much to say (laughs) about all of this. And I just, you know, I'd like to be useful. Mm -hmm. And I think what I want to say is that spend a little time, you know, if you're thinking about how to be engaged, what is, you know, gnawing away at you? you? What do you need to know more about? What are you interested in? And kind of follow your own lead And just make some time, put it in your schedule and, you know, show up for it.
0: Well, I want to do a plug for the dog shelters because Mm -hmm. just today, you know, I was reading about how uh, many dogs are being returned to shelters that earlier in the pandemic, people adopted them and they had Mm -hmm. like a family life. And I don't know why, because I didn't didn't really investigate yet. You know, people have to go back to work. It's just an impossible housing situation or. What's going on? But I felt really sad. Yeah. So I would really like to encourage everybody to go walk a dog and you know, like uh, cuddle or something like that. Because they, many of them have just lost their families. Yeah. So um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know so it was terrible. when you, you you brought it up, and I thought, oh yeah, yeah. you know, like. <sighs> and then I want to ask you a question mm-hmm. um, about. Uh, what the plastic bag mandala project was <laughs> that you did in New York City, like right. I remember like i um you know had recently rented my apartment in New York at one point, and um I was rather dependent on plastic bags to throw away trash, you know and right. things like that, and then I was teaching with Ethan Nicktern, and he made a whole point of like a campaign to ban plastic bags, and I just thought, right. what am I gonna do with my trash you know like. <laughs> right.
1: Oh, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah.
0: Did you make plastic bags into mandalas?
1: Yeah, we kind of did. So it was a very, it was a cool project. It was an awareness raising project that had to do with uh, talking to New Yorkers about the possibility of, of this legislation that would ban bags. And I did talk to to many people like you, Sharon, many of friends of mine who said, where will I put my garbage if I'm not putting it in my... <laughs> I and mean, the answer my, is... Like, Well, the answer is, I mean, it's so, trash turns out to be so complex. It's really Mm -hmm. complicated, but there's certain kinds of garbage bags that are the the ones we pay for that are a little heavier duty Mm -hmm. that, um, they're not the ones that are threatening us. Mm -hmm. It's the very thin, um, single use plastic that Mm -hmm. clogs, Mm -hmm. that clogs drains and it goes into the trees and, Um, so there was a specific reason, like in countries like India and Mexico, it really can create like flooding because the bags will, you know, go into the, the drains and it can kill animals. So it goes on and on. But, but what we would do with this project is we would try to take people's plastic bags and then give them, um, a cloth bag. Mm -hmm. So we would, we would give you something to try to use at least for your shopping, Mm -hmm. And to start, like, I think, I think of it as systems design and redesign. If you realize that you can, um, Take your, you know, your cloth bag or in Mexico City, we all take market bags to the, you know, to the marketplace and you fill up your market bag weekly. Um, and so this idea of convincing people that we could redesign a small system, you know, a, a habitual pattern of using bags that we're used to and just replace it with something else. And we took people's bags. We wove them into this massive (laughs) mandala. Mm -hmm. And what it really did was it created conversation and community. Mm -hmm. So it was a way to bring people together. And it was the Pratt students who came up with this idea in in one of those classes. Mm -hmm. And and they were able to take their idea to the farmer's market in Union Square and talk to people. And we had bags, uh, cloth bags donated. And so it became... A way of feeling uh, that you're having a real impact.
0: Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, but complicated problem. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. they are.
0: You know. So. Yeah. Um, and we all yeah. have to learn some things. You know. <laughs> like, what do yeah. I do with my?
1: Right. Josh. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, you can go. You could say that if if the legislation just changed that we didn't make a certain kind of bag and we made Mm -hmm. another kind that wasn't damaging. It's, you know, it's a conversation about like, what's the best way to make change? And in a case like this, it was really unclear Mm -hmm. um, what was the best approach. So I learned a lot about activism, just taking, like you take a stand and then you see what happens. You know, you say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to work on this and see where it goes. And at the end, you can see if, you know, if you've had any impact or not. But um, there, there are many things in life that are like this, right? Like mm-hmm. writing letters, asking people to vote.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my daughter and I wrote many letters this year. And mm-hmm. I don't know if they made a difference, but she and I writing them, it was a really beautiful time together.
0: Yeah, And yeah.
1: Um, energetically, I think... That, um, you know, you are the person who can say (laughs) all the things that I know and believe about loving kindness. And that when we are generating these thoughts of goodness Mm -hmm. and change and benefit, that that we're starting with ourselves and we're impacting our own well-being. And from there, we can impact possibly others, even if it's Mm -hmm. just with a smile. And then many, many, many smiles maybe will impact society, right?
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. So uh, I wish we would have the chance to just talk on and on, but I'm afraid we don't. So yeah. I'm wondering if to close our conversation, you could lead us in a guided meditation.
1: Oh, wow. Um Yes, of course. What an honor to uh, lead a meditation for you, Sharon. Yeah, um, after so many years listening to you mm-hmm. leading meditations, um, absolutely. So, I think I will guide um, about a about a five to ten minute meditation for those of you who would like a little moment and. Um, And I'll end it with a very short poem that we can take away and reflect on afterwards if if we'd like to do that. If we were together on Zoom, we'd get to talk about our practice. But um, so here we go. So let's just settle and pick our spot where we would like to practice together for the next let's say 10 minutes, and whether you're sitting on the ground or on a chair, finding a sense of connection to the earth. So we may not be sitting on the soil, but we can imagine the earth beneath us. And I like to always think that I'm planting myself like a tree, and that I have roots going into the ground. So sitting up with a tall spine. Maybe your shoulder blades move down your back a little bit, allowing your heart center to open up. And if you tuck your chin ever so slightly, you might feel a nice opening in the back of your neck. The neck is very... um, tense from all the zoom and devices. So opening up the back of your neck. I like to bring in the image of nature when I settle. So whether I'm sitting next to my tree or imagining that I'm a a blade of grass. There's a sense of connection with the rest of nature. Now that we're settled, I'm going to invite you to put your hands on your lower belly And see if you can feel the breath as you inhale and exhale. When you inhale, your belly will expand. And when you exhale, it will empty out and go closer to the spine. And playing with this for a moment, maybe feeling the lower belly expand like a balloon a little more than usual. And then emptying out the balloon This is actually a nice way to do meditation at the end of the day with with your child or even just with yourself if you're lying in bed and you can't sleep. Because being able to touch the belly and feeling it moving is a way to connect with the breath and the body. And this is a pranayama exercise called belly breathing. Pranayama is a way that we can work with our breath to expand our life force energy by working with our inhale and our exhale. It's also a nice way to bring the breath down because sometimes we're holding our breath up in our chest. And through this practice, we bring it down into the belly. So now if you'd like to put your hands on your legs Allowing your breath to return to a normal, unmodulated breath, bringing your attention to the inhale. Noticing a slight pause at the top of the breath before you exhale. Then there's a slight pause at the bottom before the body begins to inhale again. So for the next minute or so, we'll watch the four parts of our breath. The inhaling up, the slight pause, exhaling down, slight pause, So that four-part breath watching is called watching the breath. And it's also something you can do on your own or with your kids. Watching each section of the breath in the body And then finally we'll bring our attention to the breath again, but this time we're just noticing if thoughts, feelings, emotions, phenomenon enter. And we're using the breath as the anchor. And our bigger awareness is noticing when we move away from the breath. When you notice that your attention has wandered, that's perfectly normal. That's what happens to most of us all the time. You notice you've wandered and you return back to the breath. Enjoying this last minute of stillness. Sometimes the last minute is the sweetest because we know we'll return to all the things we have to do. But just remember that you can always return to this wonderful stillness anytime and anywhere. I always like to end my practice thanking myself for showing up and thanking thanking all the many people who have supported me on my path. Grateful to be here. Lovely to be here with you all today. And hoping that our time here together will be of benefit to all beings. So I just wanted to end with a short poem to reflect on. It's called The Way It Is by William Stafford. There's a thread you follow It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do, nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So I want to leave you with a writing prompt to write a story about a thread you have held onto in your life, if that seems like something fun to do. And and thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Well, thank you so much for the beautiful meditation and for the poem. To learn more about Gala's work, you can find her on social media at Gala Narezo, it's at G-A-L-A-N-A-R-E-Z-O, or visit her website at wwwgala That's that's G-A-L-A-N-A-R-E-Z-O.net. And thank you all for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at Sharensalsberg.com.